Part 1 of Ball of Fat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ball of Fat by Guy de Maupassant. Translated by M. Walter Dunn. Part 1. Read by Michael Robinson. Carbondale, Illinois. For many days now, the fag end of the army had been straggling through the town. They were not troops, but a disbanded horde. The beards of the men were long and filthy, their uniforms in tatters, and they advanced at an easy pace without flag or regiment. All seemed worn out and back-broken, incapable of a thought or a resolution, marching by habit solely, and falling from fatigue as soon as they stopped. In short, they were a mobilized Pacific people, bending under the weight of the gun, some little squads on the alert, easy to take alarm and prompt an enthusiasm, ready to attack or to flee, and in the midst of them, some red breeches, the remains of a division broke up in a great battle, some somber artillerymen in line with these varied kinds of foot soldiers, and sometimes the brilliant helmet of a dragoon on foot who followed with difficulty the shortest march of the lines. Some legions of free shooters, under the heroic names of Avengers of the Defeat, citizens of the tomb, partakers of death, passed in their turn with the air of bandits. Their leaders were former cloth or grain merchants, ex-merchants in tallow or soap, warriors of circumstance, elected officers on account of their escutions and the length of their mustaches, covered with arms and with braid, speaking in constrained voices, discussing plans of campaign and pretending to carry agonized France alone on their swaggering shoulders, but sometimes fearing their own soldiers, prison birds that were often brave at first and later proved to be plunderers and debauchees. It was said that the Prussians were going to enter ruin. The National Guard, who for two months had been carefully recointering in the neighboring woods, shooting sometimes their own sentinels, and ready for a combat whenever a little wolf stirred in the thicket, had now returned to their firesides. Their arms, their uniforms, all the murderous accoutrements with which they had lately struck fear into the national heart for three leagues in every direction had suddenly disappeared. The last French soldiers finally came across the Seine to reach the Audemer Bridge through Saint-Sever and Bourg-Achard, and marching behind, on foot, between two officers of ordnance, the general, in despair, unable to do anything with these incongruous tatters, himself lost in the breaking up of a people accustomed to conquer, and disastrously beaten in spite of his legendary bravery. A profound calm, a frightful, silent expectancy had spread over the city. 
many of the heavy citizens emasculated by commerce anxiously awaited the conquerors trembling lest their roasting spits or kitchen knives be considered arms all life seemed stopped shops were closed the streets dumb sometimes an inhabitant intimidated by this silence moved rapidly along next the walls the agony of waiting made them wish the enemy would come in the afternoon of the day which followed the departure of the french troops some uhlans coming from one knows not where crossed the town with celerity then a little later a black mass descended the side of st catherine while two other invading bands appeared by way of Darnatal and Boigualame. The advance guard of the three bodies joined one another at the same moment in Hotel de Ville Square, and, by all the neighboring streets, the German army continued to arrive, spreading out its battalion, making the pavement resound under their hard, rhythmic step. Some orders of the commander, in a foreign, guttural voice reached the houses which seemed dead and deserted, while behind closed shutters eyes were watching these victorious men, masters of the city, of fortunes, of lives, through the rights of war. The inhabitants, shut up in their rooms, were visited with the kind of excitement that a cataclysm or some fatal upheaval of the earth brings to us against which all force is useless for the same sensation is produced each time that the established order of things is overturned when security no longer exists and all that protect the laws of man and of nature find themselves at the mercy of unreasoning ferocious brutality the trembling of the earth crushing the houses and burying an entire people a river overflowing its banks and carrying in its course the drowned peasants carcasses of beeves and girders snatched from roofs or a glorious army massacring those trying to defend themselves leading others prisoners pillaging in the name of the sword and thanking god to the sound of the cannon all are alike frightful scourges which disconnect all belief in eternal justice all the confidence that we have in the protection of heaven and the reason of man some detachments rapped at each door then disappeared into the houses it was occupation after invasion then the duty commences for the conquered to show themselves gracious toward the conquerors after some time as soon as the first terror disappears a new calm is established in many families the prussian officer eats at the table he is sometimes well bred and through politeness pities france and speaks of his repugnance in taking part in this affair one is grateful to him for this sentiment then one may be some day or other in need of his protection by treating him well one has perhaps a less number of men to feed and why should we wound anyone on whom we are entirely dependent to act thus would be less bravery than temerity and temerity is no longer a fault of the commoner of rouen
as it was at the time of the heroic defense when their city became famous. Finally, each told himself that the highest judgment of French urbanity required that they be allowed to be polite to the strange soldier in the house, provided they did not show themselves familiar with him in public. Outside, they would not make themselves known to each other. But at home they could chat freely, and the German might remain longer each evening warming his feet at their hearthstones. The town even took on, little by little, its ordinary aspect. The French scarcely went out, but the Prussian soldiers grumbled in the streets. In short, the officers of the Blue Hussars, who dragged with arrogance their great weapons of death up and down the pavement, seemed to have no more grievous scorn for the simple citizens than the officers or the sportsmen who, the year before, drank in the same cafés. There was nevertheless something in the air, something subtle and unknown, a strange, intolerable atmosphere, like a penetrating odor, the odor of invasion. It filled the dwellings and the public places, changed the taste of food, gave the impression of being on a journey far away among barbarous and dangerous tribes. The conquerors exacted money, much money. The inhabitants always paid, and they were rich enough to do it. But the richer a trading Norman becomes, the more he suffers at every outlay, at each part of his fortune that he sees pass from his hands into those of another. Therefore, two or three leagues below the town, following the course of the river toward Croisette, Dependal, or Bessart, mariners and fishermen often picked up the swollen corpse of a German in uniform from the bottom of the river. Killed by the blow of a knife, the head crushed with a stone, or perhaps thrown into the water by a push from the high bridge. The slime of the riverbed buried these obscure vengeances, savage but legitimate, unknown heroisms, mute attacks more perilous than the battles of broad day, and without the echoing sound of glory. For hatred of the foreigner always arouses some intrepid ones, who are ready to die for an idea. Finally, as soon as the invaders had brought the town quite under subjection with their inflexible discipline, without having been guilty of any of the horrors for which they were famous along their triumphal line of march, people began to take courage, and the need of trade put new heart into the commerce of the country. Some had large interests at Havre, which the French army occupied, and they wished to try and reach this port by going to Dieppe by land and there embarking. They used their influence with the German soldiers with whom they had an acquaintance, and finally an authorization of departure was obtained from the general-in-chief. Then a large diligence with four horses having been engaged for this journey, and ten persons having engaged seats in it, it was resolved to set out on Tuesday morning before daylight in order to escape observation. For some time before, the frost had been hardening the earth, and on Monday, toward three o'clock, great black clouds coming from the north brought the snow which fell without interruption during the evening 
and all night. At half-past four in the morning, the travelers met in the courtyard of Hotel Normandy, where they were to take the carriage. They were still full of sleep, and shivering with cold under their wraps. They could only see each other dimly in the obscure light, and the accumulation of heavy winter garments made them all resemble fat curates in long cassocks. Only two of the men were acquainted. A third accosted them, and they chatted. "'I'm going to take my wife.' said one i too said another and i said the third the first added we shall not return to rouen and if the prussians approach havre we shall go over to england all had the same projects being of the same mind as yet the horses were not harnessed a little lantern carried by a stable boy went out one door from time to time to immediately appear at another the feet of the horses striking the floor could be heard although deadened by the straw and litter and the voice of a man talking to the beasts sometimes swearing came from the end of the building a light tinkling of bells announced that they were taking down the harness this murmur soon became a clear and continuous rhythm by the movement of the animal stopping sometimes then breaking into a brusque shake which was accompanied by the dull stamp of a sabbat upon the hard earth. The door suddenly closed. All noise ceased. The frozen citizens were silent. They remained immovable and stiff. A curtain of uninterrupted white flakes constantly sparkled in its descent to the ground. It effaced forms and powdered everything with a downy moss. And nothing could be heard in the great silence. The town was calm and buried under the wintry frost as this fall of snow, unnameable and floating, a sensation rather than a sound, trembling atoms which only seemed to fill all space, came to cover the earth. The man reappeared with his lantern, pulling at the end of a rope a sad horse which would not come willingly. He placed him against the pole, fastened the traces, walked about a long time adjusting the harness, for he had the use of but one hand, the other carrying the lantern. As he went for the second horse, he noticed the travelers, motionless, already white with snow, and said to them, Why not get into the carriage? You will be under cover at least. They had evidently not thought of it, and they hastened to do so. The three men installed their wives at the back, and then followed them. Then the other forms, undecided and veiled, took in their turn the last places, without exchanging a word. The floor was covered with straw in which the feet ensconced themselves the ladies at the back having brought little copper foot-stoves with a carbon fire lighted them and for some time in low voices enumerated the advantages of the appliances repeating things that they had known for a long time finally the carriage was harnessed with six horses instead of four because the travelling was very bad and a voice called out is everybody aboard and a voice within answered, Yes. They were off. 
The carriage moved slowly, slowly for a little way. The wheels were embedded in the snow. The whole body groaned with heavy cracking sounds. The horses glistened, puffed, and smoked, and the great whip of the driver snapped without ceasing, hovering about on all sides, nodding and unrolling itself like a thin serpent, lashing brusquely some horse on the rebound which then put forth its most violent effort. Now the day was imperceptibly dawning. The light flakes, which one of the travelers, a Ruinese by birth, said looked like a shower of cotton, no longer fell. A faint light filtered through the great dull clouds, which rendered more brilliant the white of the fields, where appeared a line of great trees clothed in whiteness, or a chimney with a cap of snow. In the carriage, each looked at the others curiously, in the sad light of this dawn. At the back, in the best places, Mr. Lusseau, wholesale merchant of wine, of Grand Pont Street, and Mrs. Lousseau were sleeping opposite each other. Lousseau had bought out his former patron who failed in business and made his fortune. He sold bad wine, at a good price, to small retailers in the country, and passed among his friends and acquaintances as a knavish wag, a true Norman, full of deceit and joviality. His reputation as a sharper was so well established, that one evening, at the residence of the prefect, Mr. Turnell, author of some fables and songs of keen satirical mind, a local celebrity, having proposed to some ladies, who seemed to be getting a little sleepy, that they make up a game of Lousseau tricks, the joke traversed the rooms of the prefect, reached those of the town, and then, in the months to come, made many a face in the province expand with laughter. Lousseau was especially known for his love of farce of every kind, for his jokes, good and bad, and no one could ever talk with him without thinking, He is invaluable, this Lousseau! Of tall figure, his balloon-shaped front was surmounted by a ruddy face surrounded by gray whiskers. His wife, large, strong, and resolute, with a quick, decisive manner, was the order and arithmetic of this house of commerce, while he was the life of it, through his joyous activity. Beside them, Mr. Carey Lamadon held himself with great dignity, as if belonging to a superior caste. A considerable man, in cottons, proprietor of three mills, officer of the Legion of Honor, and member of the General Council. He had remained during the Empire chief of the friendly opposition, famous for making the Emperor pay more dear for rallying to the cause than if he had combated it with blunted arms, according to his own story. Madame Carré Lamadon, much younger than her husband, was the consolation of officers of good family sent to Rouen in garrison. She sat opposite her husband, very dainty, petite, and pretty, wrapped closely in furs and looking with sad eyes at the interior of the carriage. Her neighbors, the Count and Countess Hubert de Breville, bore the name of one of the most ancient and noble families of Normandy. The Count, an old gentleman of good figure, 
accentuated by the artifices of his toilet his resemblance to king henry the fourth who following a glorious legend of the family had impregnated one of the de breville ladies whose husband for this reason was made a count and governor of the province a colleague of mr carre lamadon in the general council count hubert represented the orleans party in the department the story of his marriage with the daughter of a little captain of a privateer had always remained a mystery but as the countess had a grand air received better than any one and passed for having been loved by the son of louis philippe all the nobility did her honor and her salon remained the first in the country the only one which preserved the old gallantry and to which the entree was difficult the fortune of the brevilles amounted it was said to five hundred thousand francs in income all in good securities these six persons formed the foundation of the carriage company the society side serene and strong honest established people who had both religion and principles by a strange chance all the women were upon the same seat and the countess had for neighbors two sisters who picked at long strings of beads and muttered some potters and aves one was old and as pitted with smallpox as if she had received a broadside of grape-shot full in the face the other very sad had a pretty face and a disease of the lungs which added to their devoted faith illumined them and made them appear like martyrs opposite these two devotees were a man and a woman who attracted the notice of all the man well known was cornudet the democrat the terror of respectable people for twenty years he had soaked his great red beard in the box of all the democratic cafés he had consumed with his friends and confreres a rather pretty fortune left him by his father an old confectioner and he awaited the establishing of the republic with impatience that he might have the position he merited by his great expenditures on the fourth of september by some joke perhaps he believed himself elected prefect but when he went to assume the duties the clerks of the office were masters of the place and refused to recognize him obliging him to retreat rather a good bachelor on the whole inoffensive and serviceable he had busied himself with incomparable ardor in organizing the defense against the prussians he had dug holes in all the plains cut down young trees from the neighboring forests, sown snares over all routes, and, at the approach of the enemy, took himself quickly back to the town. He now thought he could be of more use in Havre, where more entrenchments would be necessary. The woman, one of those called a coquette, was celebrated for her embon point, which had given her the nickname of Ball of Fat. Small, round, and fat as lard, with puffy fingers choked at the phalanges like chaplets of short sausages, with a stretched and shining skin, an enormous bosom which shook under her dress, she was, nevertheless, 
pleasing and sought after on account of a certain freshness and breeziness of disposition her face was a round apple a peony bud ready to pop into bloom and inside that opened two great black eyes shaded with thick brows that cast a shadow within and below a charming mouth humid for kissing furnished with shining microscopic baby teeth she was it was said full of admirable qualities as soon as she was recognized a whisper went around among the honest women and the words prostitute and public shame were whispered so loud that she raised her head then she threw at her neighbors such a provoking courageous look that a great silence reigned and everybody looked down except Lousseau, who watched her with an exhilarated air. And immediately conversation began among the three ladies, whom the presence of this girl had suddenly rendered friendly, almost intimate. It seemed to them they should bring their married dignity into union in opposition to that sold without shame for legal love always takes on a tone of contempt for its free confrere. The three men, also drawn together by an instinct of preservation at the sight of Cornudet, talked money with a certain high tone of disdain for the poor. Count Hubert talked of the havoc which the Prussians had caused, the losses which resulted from being robbed of cattle and from destroyed crops, with the assurance of a great lord ten times millionaire whom these ravages would scarcely cramp for a year mr Carey lamadon largely experienced in the cotton industry had had need of sending six hundred thousand francs to england as a trifle in reserve if it should be needed as for Lousseau, he had arranged with the french administration to sell them all the wines that remained in his cellars on account of which the state owed him a formidable sum which he counted on collecting at havre and all three threw toward each other swift and amicable glances although in different conditions they felt themselves to be brothers through money that grand freemasonry of those who possess it and make the gold rattle by putting their hands in their trousers pockets the carriage went so slowly that at ten o'clock in the morning they had not gone four leagues the men had got down three times to climb hills on foot they began to be disturbed because they should be now taking breakfast at totes and they despaired now of reaching there before night each one had begun to watch for an inn along the route when the carriage foundered in a snowdrift and it took two hours to extricate it growing appetites troubled their minds and no eating-house no wine-shop showed itself the approach of the prussians and the passage of the troops having frightened away all these industries the gentlemen ran to the farms along the way for provisions but they did not even find bread for the defiant peasant had concealed his stores for fear of being pillaged by the soldiers who having nothing to put between their teeth took by force whatever they discovered 
Toward one o'clock in the afternoon, Lousseau announced that there was a decided hollow in his stomach. Everybody suffered with him, and the violent need of eating, ever increasing, had killed conversation. From time to time someone yawned, another immediately imitated him, and each in his turn, in accordance with his character, his knowledge of life, and his social position, opened his mouth with carelessness or modesty, placing his hand quickly before the yawning hole from whence issued a vapor. Ball of fat, after many attempts, bent down as if seeking something under her skirts. She hesitated a second, looked at her neighbors, then sat up again tranquilly. The faces were pale and drawn. Lousseau affirmed that he would give a thousand francs for a small ham. His wife made a gesture as if in protest, but she kept quiet. She was always troubled when anyone spoke of squandering money, and could not comprehend any pleasantry on the subject. "'The fact is,' said the Count, "'I cannot understand why I did not think to bring some provisions with me.' Each reproached himself in the same way. However, Cornudet had a flask full of rum. He offered it. It was refused coldly. Lousseau alone accepted two swallows, and then passed back the flask, saying, by way of thanks, It is good all the same. It is warming and checks the appetite. The alcohol put him in good humor, and he proposed that they do as they did on the little ship in the song, eat the fattest of the passengers. This indirect allusion to ball of fat choked the well-bred people. They said nothing. Cornudet alone laughed. The two good sisters had ceased to mumble their rosaries and, with their hands enfolded in their great sleeves, held themselves immovable obstinately lowering their eyes, without doubt offering to heaven the suffering it had brought upon them. Finally at three o'clock, when they found themselves in the midst of an interminable plain, without a single village in sight, Ball of Fat, bending down quickly, drew from under the seat a large basket, covered with a white napkin. At first she brought out a little china plate and a silver cup, then a large dish in which there were two whole chickens cut up and embedded in their own jelly. And one could still see in the basket other good things, some pâtés, fruits, and sweetmeats. Provisions for three days if they should not see the kitchen of an inn. Four necks of bottles were seen among the packages of food. She took a wing of chicken and began to eat it delicately, with one of those little biscuits called Regents in Normandy. All looks were turned in her direction. Then the odor spread, enlarging the nostrils and making the mouth water, besides causing a painful contraction of the jaw behind the ears. The scorn of the women for this girl became ferocious, as if they had a desire to kill her and throw her out of the carriage into the snow, her, her silver cup, her basket, provisions, and all. But Lousseau, with his eyes, devoured the dish of chicken. 
he said, Fortunately, Madame had more precaution than we. There are some people who know how to think ahead always. She turned toward him, saying, If you would like some of it, sir, it is hard to go without breakfast so long. He saluted her and replied, Faith, I frankly cannot refuse. I can stand it no longer. Everything goes in time of war, does it not, madame? And then, casting a comprehensive glance around, he added, In moments like this, one can but be pleased to find people who are obliging. He had a newspaper which he spread out on his knees, that no spot might come to his pantaloons, and upon the point of a knife that he always carried in his pocket, he took up a leg all glistening with jelly, put it between his teeth, and masticated it with a satisfaction so evident that there ran through the carriage a great sigh of distress. Then Ball of Fat, in a sweet and humble voice, proposed that the two sisters partake of her collation. They both accepted instantly, and without raising their eyes, began to eat very quickly, after stammering their thanks. Cornudet no longer refused the offers of his neighbor, and they formed, with the sisters, a sort of table, by spreading out some newspapers upon their knees. The mouths opened and shut without ceasing. They masticated, swallowed, gulping ferociously. Lesseau in his corner was working hard, and in a low voice was trying to induce his wife to follow his example. She resisted for a long time. Then, when a drawn sensation ran through her body, she yielded. Her husband, rounding his phrase, asked their charming companion if he might be allowed to offer a little peace to Madame Lousseau. She replied, Why, yes, certainly, sir, with an amiable smile as she passed the dish. An embarrassing thing confronted them when they opened the first bottle of Bordeaux. They had but one cup. Each passed it after having tasted. Cornudet alone, for politeness without doubt, placed his lips at the spot left humid by his fair neighbor. Then, surrounded by people eating, suffocated by the odors of the food, the Count and Countess de Breville, as well as Madame and Mademoiselle Carré Lamadon, were suffering that odious torment which has preserved the name of Tantalus. Suddenly, the young wife of the manufacturer gave forth such a sigh that all heads were turned in her direction. She was as white as the snow without. Her eyes closed, her head drooped. She had lost consciousness. Her husband, much excited, implored the help of everybody. Each lost his head completely until the elder of the two sisters, holding the head of the sufferer, slipped Ball of Fat's cup between her lips and forced her to swallow a few drops of wine. The pretty little lady revived, opened her eyes, smiled, and declared in a dying voice that she felt very well now but in order that the attack might not return, the sister urged her to drink a full glass of Bordeaux and added, 
It is just hunger, nothing more. Then Ball of Fat, blushing and embarrassed, looked at the four travelers who had fasted, and stammered, G Goodness knows, uh, if I had dared to offer anything to these gentlemen and ladies, I would— Then she was silent, as if fearing an insult. Lousseau took up the word. Ah, certainly in times like these all the world are brothers and ought to aid each other. Come, ladies, without ceremony, why the devil not accept? We do not know whether we shall even find a house where we can pass the night. At the pace we are going now, we shall not reach totes before noon tomorrow. They still hesitated, no one daring to assume the responsibility of a yes. The Count decided the question. He turned toward the fat, intimidated girl and, taking on a grand air of condescension, he said to her, We accept with gratitude, madame. End of Part 1 Part 2 of Ball of Fat This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ball of Fat by Guy de Maupassant Translated by M. Walter Dunn Part 2 Read by Michael Robinson, Carbondale, Illinois It is the first step that counts. The Rubicon passed, one lends himself to the occasion squarely. The basket was stripped. It still contained a pâté de foie gras, a pâté of larks, a piece of smoked tongue, some preserved pears, a loaf of hard bread, some wafers, a full cup of pickled gherkins and onions, of which Crudity's ball of fat, like all women, was extremely fond. They could not eat this girl's provisions without speaking to her. And so they chatted, with reserve at first, then, as she carried herself well, with more abandon. The ladies de Breville and Carre Lamadon, who were acquainted with all the ins and outs of good breeding, were gracious with a certain delicacy. The countess especially showed that amiable condescension of very noble ladies who do not fear being spoiled by contact with anyone, and was charming. But the great Madame Lousseau, who had the soul of a plebeian, remained crabbed, saying little, and eating much. The conversation was about the war, naturally. They related the horrible deeds of the Prussians, the brave acts of the French, and all of them, although running away, did homage to those who stayed behind. 
Then personal stories began to be told, and Ball of Fat related, with sincere emotion, and in the heated words that such girls sometimes use in expressing their natural feelings, how she had left Rouen. I believed at first that I could remain, she said. I had my house full of provisions, and I preferred to feed a few soldiers rather than expatriate myself to go I knew not where. But as soon as I saw them, those Prussians, that was too much for me. They made my blood boil with anger, and I wept for very shame all day long. Oh, if I were only a man! I watched them from my windows, the great porkers with their pointed helmets, and my maid held my hands to keep me from throwing the furniture down upon them. Then one of them came to lodge at my house. I sprang at his throat the first thing. They are no more difficult to strangle than other people, and I should have put an end to that one then and there had they not pulled me away by the hair. After that, it was necessary to keep out of sight. And finally, when I found an opportunity, I left town, and here I am. They congratulated her. She grew in the estimation of her companions who had not shown themselves so hot-brained, and Cornudet, while listening to her, took on the approving, benevolent smile of an apostle, as a priest would if he heard a devotee praise God, for the long-bearded Democrats have a monopoly of patriotism as the men in cassocks have of religion. In his turn he spoke, in a doctrinal tone, with the emphasis of a proclamation such as we see pasted on the walls about town, and finished by a bit of eloquence, whereby he gave that scamp of a badinguette a good lashing. Then Balafat was angry, for she was a Bonapartist. She grew redder than a cherry, and stammering with indignation, said, I would like to have seen you in his place, you other people. Then everything would have been quite right. Oh, yes, it is you who have betrayed this man. One would never have had to leave France if it had been governed by blackguards like you. Cornudet, undisturbed, preserved a disdainful, superior smile, but all felt that the high note had been struck until the Count, not without some difficulty, calmed the exasperated girl and proclaimed with a manner of authority that all sincere opinions should be respected. But the Countess and the manufacturer's wife who had in their souls an unreasonable hatred for the people that favor a republic, and the same instinctive tenderness that all women have for a decorative, despotic government, felt themselves drawn, in spite of themselves, toward this prostitute, so full of dignity, whose sentiments so strongly resembled their own. The basket was empty. By ten o'clock they had easily exhausted the contents, and regretted that there was not more. Conversation continued for some time, but a little more coldly since they had finished eating. The night fell, the darkness little by little became profound, and the cold felt more during digestion made Ball of Fat shiver in spite of her plumpness. 
Then Madame de Breville offered her the little foot-stove in which the fuel had been renewed many times since morning. She accepted it immediately, for her feet were becoming numb with cold. The ladies Carrère Lamadon and Lousseau gave theirs to the two religious sisters. The driver had lighted his lanterns. They shone out with a lively glimmer showing a cloud of foam beyond the sweat of the horses, and on both sides of the way the snow seemed to roll itself along under the moving reflection of the lights. Inside the carriage one could distinguish nothing, but a sudden movement seemed to be made between Ball of Fat and Cornudet, and Lousseau, whose eye penetrated the shadow, believed that he saw the big-bearded man start back quickly as if he had received a swift, noiseless blow. Then some twinkling points of fire appeared in the distance along the road. It was Totes. They had traveled eleven hours, which, with the two hours given to resting and feeding the horses, made thirteen. They entered the town and stopped before the Hotel of Commerce. The carriage door opened. A well-known sound gave the travelers a start. It was the scabbard of a sword hitting the ground. Immediately a German voice was heard in the darkness. Although the diligence was not moving, no one offered to alight fearing someone might be waiting to murder them as they stepped out. Then the conductor appeared, holding in his hand one of the lanterns which lighted the carriage to its depth, and showed the two rows of frightened faces, whose mouths were open and whose eyes were wide with surprise and fear. Outside beside the driver, in plain sight, stood a German officer, an excessively tall young man, thin and blonde, squeezed into his uniform like a girl in a corset, and wearing on his head a flat, oilcloth cap which made him resemble the porter of an English hotel. His enormous mustache, of long straight hairs, growing gradually thin at each side and terminating in a single blonde thread so fine that one could not perceive where it ended, seemed to weigh heavily on the corners of his mouth, and, drawing down the cheeks, left a decided wrinkle about the lips. In Alsatian French he invited the travelers to come in, saying in a suave tone, "'Will you descend, gentlemen and ladies?' The two good sisters were the first to obey, with the docility of saints accustomed ever to submission. The Count and Countess then appeared, followed by the manufacturer and his wife. Then Lousseau, pushing ahead of him his larger half. The last named, as he set foot on the earth, said to the officer, "'Good evening, sir,' more as a measure of prudence than politeness. The officer, insolent as all powerful people usually are, looked at him without a word. Ball of Fat and Cornudet, although nearest the door, were the last to descend, grave and haughty before the enemy. The fat girl tried to control herself and be calm. 
The Democrat waved a tragic hand, and his long beard seemed to tremble a little and grow redder. They wished to preserve their dignity, comprehending that in such meetings as these they represented in some degree their great country, and somewhat disgusted with the docility of her companions, the fat girl tried to show more pride than her neighbors, the honest women, and as she felt that someone should set an example, she continued her attitude of resistance assumed at the beginning of the journey. They entered the vast kitchen of the inn, and the Germans, having demanded their traveling papers signed by the general-in-chief, in which the name, the description, and profession of each traveler was mentioned, and having examined them all critically, comparing the people and their signatures, said, It is quite right, and went out. Then they breathed. They were still hungry, and supper was ordered. A half hour was necessary to prepare it, and while two servants were attending to this, they went to their rooms. They found them along a corridor which terminated in a large glazed door. Finally, they sat down at table when the proprietor of the inn himself appeared. He was a former horse merchant, a large asthmatic man, with a constant wheezing and rattling in his throat. His father had left him with the name of Fallen V. He asked, Is Miss Elizabeth Rousset here? Ball of Fat started as she answered, It is I. The Prussian officer wishes to speak with you immediately. With me? Yes, that is, if you are Miss Elizabeth Rousset. She was disturbed, and reflecting for an instant, declared flatly, That is my name, but I shall not go. A stir was felt around her. Each discussed and tried to think of the cause of this order. The Count approached her, saying, You are wrong, madame, for your refusal may lead to considerable difficulty, not only for yourself, but for all your companions. It is never worth while to resist those in power. This request cannot assuredly bring any danger. It is, without doubt, about some forgotten formality. Everybody agreed with him, asking, begging, beseeching her to go, and at last they convinced her that it was best. They all feared the complications that might result from disobedience. She finally said, It is for you that I do this, you understand. The countess took her by the hand, saying, and we are grateful to you for it. She went out. They waited before sitting down at table. Each one regretted not having been sent for in the place of this violent, irascible girl, and mentally prepared some platitudes in case they should be called in their turn. But at the end of ten minutes she reappeared, out of breath, red to suffocation, and exasperated, she stammered, Oh, the rascal! The rascal! All gathered around to learn something, but she said nothing. 
and when the count insisted she responded with great dignity no it does not concern you i can say nothing then they all seated themselves around a high soup tureen whence came the odor of cabbage in spite of alarm the supper was gay the cider was good the beverage Lousseau and the good sisters took as a means of economy the others called for wine cornudet demanded beer he had a special fashion of uncorking the bottle making froth on the liquid carefully filling the glass and then holding it before the light to better appreciate the color when he drank his great beard which still kept some of the foam of his beloved beverage seemed to tremble with tenderness his eyes were squinted in order not to lose sight of his tipple and he had the unique air of fulfilling the function for which he was born one would say that there was in his mind a meeting like that of affinities between the two great passions that occupied his life pale ale and revolutions and assuredly he could not taste the one without thinking of the other mr and mrs follenvie dined at the end of the table the man rattling like a cracked locomotive had too much trouble in breathing to talk while eating but his wife was never silent she told all her impressions at the arrival of the prussians what they did what they said reviling them because they cost her some money and because she had two sons in the army she addressed herself especially to the countess flattered by being able to talk with a lady of quality when she lowered her voice to say some delicate thing her husband would interrupt from time to time with you had better keep silent madame follenvie but she paid no attention continuing in this fashion yes madame those people there not only eat our potatoes and pork but our pork and potatoes and it must not be believed that they are at all proper oh no such filthy things they do saving the respect i owe to you and if you could see them exercise for hours in the day they are all there in the field marching ahead then marching back turning here and turning there they might be cultivating the land or at least working on the roads of their own country but no madame these military men are profitable to no one poor people have to feed them or perhaps be murdered i am only an old woman without education it is true but when i see some endangering their constitutions by raging from morning to night i say when there are so many people found to be useless how unnecessary it is for others to take so much trouble to be nuisances truly is it not an abomination to kill people whether they be prussian or english or polish or french if one man revenges himself upon another who has done him some injury it is wicked and he is punished but when they exterminate our boys as if they were game with guns they give decorations indeed to the one who destroys the most now you see i can never understand that never cornudet raised his voice war is a barbarity when one attacks a peaceable neighbor but a sacred duty when one defends his country the old woman lowered her head yes when one defends himself it is another thing but why not make it a duty to kill all the kings who make these wars for their pleasure 
Cornudet's eyes flashed. Bravo, my countrywoman, said he. Mr. Carrere Lamadon reflected profoundly. Although he was prejudiced as a captain of industry, the good sense of this peasant woman made him think of the opulence that would be brought into the country, were the idle and consequently mischievous hands, and the troops which were now maintained in unproductiveness, employed in some great industrial work that it would require centuries to achieve. Lousseau, leaving his place, went to speak with the innkeeper in a low tone of voice. The great man laughed, shook, and squeaked. His corpulence quivered with joy at the jokes of his neighbor, and he bought of him six cases of wine for spring after the Prussians had gone. As soon as supper was finished, as they were worn out with fatigue, they retired. However, Lousseau, who had observed things after getting his wife to bed, glued his eye and then his ear to a hole in the wall to try and discover what are known as the mysteries of the corridor. At the end of about an hour he heard a groping, and looking quickly he perceived Ball of Fat, who appeared still more plump in a blue cashmere negligee trimmed with white lace. She had a candle in her hand and was directing her steps toward the great door at the end of the corridor. But a door at the side opened, and when she returned at the end of some minutes, Cornadette, in his suspenders, followed her. They spoke low, then they stopped. Ball of Fat seemed to be defending the entrance to her room with energy. Lousseau, unfortunately, could not hear all their words, but finally, as they raised their voices, he was able to catch a few. Cornadette insisted with vivacity. He said, Come now, you are a silly woman. What harm can be done? She had an indignant air in responding, No, my dear, there are moments when such things are out of place. Here it would be a shame. He doubtless did not comprehend and asked why. Then she cried out, raising her voice still more. Why? You do not see why? When there are Prussians in the house, in the very next room, perhaps? He was silent. This patriotic shame of the harlot, who would not suffer his caress so near the enemy, must have awakened the latent dignity in his heart. For, after simply kissing her, he went back to his own door with a bound. Lousseau, much excited, left the aperture, cut a caper in his room, put on his pajamas, turned back the clothes that covered the bony carcass of his companion, whom he awakened with a kiss, murmuring, Do you love me, dearie? Then all the house was still and immediately there arose somewhere from an uncertain quarter which might be the cellar but was quite as likely to be the garret a powerful snoring monotonous and regular a heavy prolonged sound like a great kettle under pressure mr fallenby was asleep 
as they had decided that they would set out at eight o'clock the next morning, they all collected in the kitchen. But the carriage, the roof of which was covered with snow, stood undisturbed in the courtyard, without horses and without a conductor. They sought him in vain in the stables, in the hay, and in the coach-house. Then they resolved to scour the town and started out. They found themselves in a square with a church at one end and some low houses on either side where they perceived some Prussian soldiers. The first one they saw was paring potatoes. The second, further off, was cleaning the hairdresser's shop. Another, bearded to the eyes, was tending a troublesome brat, cradling it and trying to appease it, and the great peasant women, whose husbands were away in the army, indicated by signs to their obedient conquerors the work they wished to have done. Cutting wood, cooking the soup, grinding the coffee or what not. One of them even washed the linen of his hostess, an impotent old grandmother. The Count, astonished, asked questions of the beetle who came out of the rectory. The old man responded, Oh, those men are not wicked. They are not the Prussians we hear about. They're from far off. I know not where. And they have left wives and children in their country. It is not amusing to them this war, I can tell you. I am sure they also weep for their homes, and that it makes as much sorrow among them as it does among us. Here, now, there is not so much unhappiness for the moment, because the soldiers do no harm, and they work as if they were in their own homes. You see, sir, among poor people, it is necessary that they aid one another. These are the great traits which war develops. Cornudet, indignant at the cordial relations between the conquerors and the conquered, preferred to shut himself up in the inn. Lousseau had a joke for the occasion. They will repeople the land. Mr. Carre Lamadon had a serious word. They tried to make amends. But they did not find the driver. Finally they discovered him in a café of the village, sitting at a table fraternally with the officer of ordnance. The Count called out to him, Were you not ordered to be ready at eight o'clock? Well, yes, but another order has been given me since. By whom? Faith, the Prussian commander. What was it? Not to harness at all. Why? I know nothing about it. Go and ask him. They tell me not to harness, and I don't harness. That's all. Did he give you the order himself? No, sir. The innkeeper gave the order for him. When was that? Last evening, as I was going to bed. The three men returned, much disturbed. They asked for Mr. Follenvy, but the servant answered that that gentleman, because of his asthma, never rose before ten o'clock, and he had given strict orders not to be wakened before that, except in case of fire. They wished to see the officer, but that was absolutely impossible, since, while he lodged at the inn, Mr. Follenvy alone was authorized to speak to him upon civil affairs. 
So they waited. The women went up to their rooms again and occupied themselves with futile tasks. Cornadet installed himself near the great chimney in the kitchen, where there was a good fire burning. He ordered one of the little tables to be brought from the café, then a can of beer. He then drew out his pipe, which plays among Democrats a part almost equal to his own, because in serving Cornadet, it was serving its country. It was a superb pipe, an admirably colored merchium, as black as the teeth of its master, but perfumed, curved, glistening, easy to the hand, completing his physiognomy. And he remained motionless, his eyes as much fixed upon the flame of the fire as upon his favorite tipple and its frothy crown. And each time that he drank, he passed his long, thin fingers through his scanty, gray hair with an air of satisfaction, after which he sucked in his mustache fringed with foam. Lousseau, under the pretext of stretching his legs, went to place some wine among the retailers of the country. The Count and the manufacturer began to talk politics. They could foresee the future of France. One of them believed in an Orleans, the other in some unknown savior for the country, a hero who would reveal himself when all were in despair. A Gousselin, or a Joan of Arc, perhaps, or would it be another Napoleon I? <sighs> if the Prince Imperial were not so young! Cornadet listened to them and smiled like one who holds the word of destiny. His pipe perfumed the kitchen. As ten o'clock struck, Mr. Follenby appeared. They asked him hurried questions, but he could only repeat two or three times, without variation, these words. The officer said to me, Mr. Volenvy, you see to it that the carriage is not harnessed for those travelers tomorrow. I do not wish them to leave without my order. That is sufficient. Then they wished to see the officer. The Count sent him his card, on which Mr. Carre Lamadon wrote his name and all his titles. The Prussian sent back word that he would meet the two gentlemen after he had breakfasted, that is to say, about one o'clock. The ladies reappeared and ate a little something despite their disquiet. Ball of Fat seemed ill and prodigiously troubled. They were finishing their coffee when the word came that the officer was ready to meet the gentlemen. Lousseau joined them, but when they tried to enlist Cornadet to give more solemnity to their proceedings, he declared proudly that he would have nothing to do with the Germans, and he betook himself to his chimney corner and ordered another liter of beer. The three men mounted the staircase and were introduced to the best room of the inn, where the officer received them, stretched out in an armchair, his feet on the mantelpiece, smoking a long porcelain pipe, and enveloped in a flamboyant dressing-gown, appropriated, without doubt, from some dwelling belonging to a common citizen of bad taste. He did not rise nor greet them, in any way, not even looking at them. 
It was a magnificent display of natural blackguardism transformed into the military victor. At the expiration of some moments, he asked, What is it you wish? The Count became spokesman. We desire to go on our way, sir. No. May I ask the cause of this refusal? Because I do not wish it. But I would respectfully observe to you, sir, that your general-in-chief gave us permission to go to Dieppe and I know of nothing we have done to merit your severity. I do not wish it. That is all. You can go. All three, having bowed, retired. The afternoon was lamentable. They could not understand this caprice of the German, and the most singular ideas would come into their heads to trouble them. Everyone stayed in the kitchen and discussed the situation endlessly, imagining all sorts of unlikely things. Perhaps they would be retained as hostages, but to what end? Or taken prisoners, or rather a considerable ransom might be demanded. At this thought a panic prevailed. The richest were the most frightened, already seeing themselves constrained to pay for their lives with sacks of gold poured into the hands of this insolent soldier. They racked their brains to think of some acceptable falsehoods to conceal their riches and make them pass themselves off for poor people. Very poor people. Lousseau took off the chain to his watch and hid it away in his pocket. The falling night increased their apprehensions. The lamp was lighted and as there was still two hours before dinner, Madame Lousseau proposed a game of thirty-one. It would be a diversion. They accepted. Cornudet himself, having smoked out his pipe, took part for politeness. The Count shuffled the cards, dealt, and Ball of Fat had thirty-one at the outset, and immediately the interest was great enough to appease the fear that haunted their minds. Then Cornudet perceived that the house of Lousseau was given to tricks. As they were going to the dinner table, Mr. Follenby again appeared and, in wheezing, rattling voice, announced, The Prussian officer orders me to ask Miss Elizabeth Rousseau if she has yet changed her mind. Ball of Fat remained standing and was pale then suddenly becoming crimson such a stifling anger took possession of her that she could not speak but finally she flashed out you may say to the dirty beast that idiot that carrion of a prussian that i shall never change it you understand never 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 the great innkeeper went out then ball of fat was immediately surrounded questioned and solicited by all to disclose the mystery of his visit she resisted at first but soon becoming exasperated she said what does he want you really want to know what he wants he wants to sleep with me everybody was choked for words and indignation was rife Cornudet broke his glass, so violently did he bring his fist down upon the table. 
there was a clamor of censure against this ignoble soldier a blast of anger a union of all for resistance as if a demand had been made on each one of the party for the sacrifice exacted of her the count declared with disgust that those people conducted themselves after the fashion of the ancient barbarians the women especially showed to ball of fat a most energetic and tender commiseration the good sisters who only showed themselves at meal-time lowered their heads and said nothing they all dined nevertheless when the first furor had abated but there was little conversation they were thinking the ladies retired early and the men all smoking organized a game at cards to which mr fallenby was invited as they intended to put a few casual questions to him on the subject of conquering the resistance of this officer but he thought of nothing but the cards and without listening or answering would keep repeating to the game sirs to the game his attention was so taken that he even forgot to expectorate which must have put him some points to the good with the organ in his breast his whistling lungs ran the whole asthmatic scale from deep profound tones to the sharp rustiness of a young cock essaying to crow he even refused to retire when his wife who had fallen asleep previously came to look for him she went away alone for she was an early bird always up with the sun while her husband was a night owl always ready to pass the night with his friends he cried out to her leave my cream chicken before the fire and then went on with his game when they saw that they could get nothing from him they declared that it was time to stop and each sought his bed they all rose rather early the next day with an undefined hope of getting away which desire the terror of passing another day in that horrible inn greatly increased alas the horses remained in the stable and the driver was invisible for want of better employment they went out and walked around the carriage the breakfast was very doleful and it became apparent that a coldness had arisen toward ball of fat and that the night which brings counsel had slightly modified their judgments they almost wished now that the prussian had secretly found this girl in order to give her companions a pleasant surprise in the morning what could be more simple besides who would know anything about it she could save appearances by telling the officer that she took pity on their distress to her it would make so little difference no one had avowed these thoughts yet in the afternoon as they were almost perishing from ennui the count proposed that they take a walk around the village each wrapped up warmly and the little party set out with the exception of cornadette who preferred to remain near the fire and the good sisters who passed their time in the church or at the curate's the cold growing more intense every day cruelly pinched their noses and ears their feet became so numb that each step was torture 
and when they came to a field it seemed to them frightfully sad under this limitless white so that everybody returned immediately with hearts hard-pressed and souls congealed the four women walked ahead the three gentlemen followed just behind Lousseau, who understood the situation asked suddenly if they thought that girl there was going to keep them long in such a place as this the count always courteous said that they could not exact from a woman a sacrifice so hard unless it should come of her own will mr carre lamadon remarked that if the french made their return through dip as they were likely to a battle would surely take place at totes this reflection made the two others anxious if we could only get away on foot said Lousseau. the count shrugged his shoulders how can we think of it in this snow and with our wives he said and then we should be pursued and caught in ten minutes and led back prisoners at the mercy of these soldiers it was true and they were silent the ladies talked of their clothes but a certain constraint seemed to disunite them suddenly at the end of the street the officer appeared his tall wasp-like figure in uniform was outlined upon the horizon formed by the snow and he was marching with knees apart a gait particularly military which is affected that they may not spot their carefully blackened boots he bowed in passing near the ladies and looked disdainfully at the men who preserved their dignity by not seeing him except Lousseau, who made a motion toward raising his hat. Ball of fat reddened to the ears. And the three married women resented the great humiliation of being thus met by this soldier in the company of this girl whom he had treated so cavalierly. But they spoke of him, of his figure and his face madame carre lamadon who had known many officers and considered herself a connoisseur of them found this one not at all bad she regretted even that he was not french because he would make such a pretty hussar one all the women would rave over again in the house no one knew what to do some sharp words even were said about things very insignificant the dinner was silent and almost immediately after it each one went to his room to kill time in sleep they descended the next morning with weary faces and exasperated hearts the women scarcely spoke to ball of fat a bell began to ring it was for a baptism the fat girl had a child being brought up among the peasants of yvetot she had not seen it for a year or thought of it but now the idea of a child being baptized threw into her heart a sudden and violent tenderness for her own and she strongly wished to be present at the ceremony as soon as she was gone everybody looked at each other then pulled their chairs together for they thought that finally something should be decided upon Lousseau had an inspiration 
it was to hold ball of fat alone and let the others go. Mr. Follenby was charged with the commission, but he returned almost immediately for the German, who understood human nature, had put him out. He pretended that he would retain everybody so long as his desire was not satisfied. Then the commonplace nature of Mrs. Lousseau burst out with, "'Well, we are not going to stay here to die of old age. Since it is the trade of this creature to accommodate herself to all kinds, I fail to see how she has the right to refuse one more than another.' I can tell you she has received all she could find in Rouen, even the coachman. Yes, madame, the prefect's coachman. I know him very well, for he bought his wine at our house. And to think that today we should be drawn into this embarrassment by this affected woman, this minx. For my part, I find that this officer conducts himself very well. He has perhaps suffered privations for a long time, and doubtless he would have preferred us three. But no, he is contented with common property. He respects married women, and we must remember, too, that he is master. He is only to say, I wish, and he could take us by force with his soldiers. The two women had a cold shiver. Pretty Mrs. Carrie Lamadon's eyes grew brilliant, and she became a little pale, as if she saw herself already taken by force by the officer. The men met and discussed the situation. Lousseau, furious, was for delivering the wretch bound hand and foot to the enemy. But the Count, descended through three generations of ambassadors, and endowed with the temperament of a diplomatist, was the advocate of ingenuity. It is best to decide upon something, said he. Then they conspired. End of Part Two Part Three of Ball of Fat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ball of Fat by Guy Maupassant. Translated by M. Walter Dunn. Part Three. Read by Michael Robinson, Carbondale, Illinois. The women kept together. The tone of their voices was lowered. Each gave advice, and the discussion was general. Everything was very harmonious. The ladies especially found delicate shades and charming subtleties of expression for saying the most unusual things. A stranger would have understood nothing, so great was the precaution of language observed. But the light edge of modesty with which every woman of the world is barbed only covers the surface. They blossom out, in a scandalous adventure of this kind, being deeply amused and feeling themselves in their element, 
mixing love with sensuality as a greedy cook prepares supper for his master. Even gaiety returned, so funny did the whole story seem to them at last. The Count found some of the jokes a little off-color, but they were so well told that he was forced to smile. In his turn, Lousseau came out with some still bolder tales, and yet nobody was wounded. The brutal thought, expressed by his wife, dominated all minds. Since it is her trade, why should she refuse this one more than another? The genteel Mrs. Carey Lamadon seemed to think that in her place she would refuse this one less than some others. They prepared the blockade at length, as if they were about to surround a fortress. Each took some role to play, some arguments he would bring to bear, some maneuvers that he would endeavor to put into execution. They decided on the plan of attack, the ruse to employ, the surprise of assault that should force this living citadel to receive the enemy in her room. Cornadette remained apart from the rest and was a stranger to the whole affair. So entirely were their minds distracted that they did not hear Ball of Fat enter. The Count uttered a light shh, which turned all eyes in her direction. There she was. The abrupt silence and a certain embarrassment hindered them from speaking to her at first. The Countess, more accustomed to the duplicity of society than the others, finally inquired, was it very amusing, that baptism? The fat girl, filled with emotion, told them all about it, the faces, the attitudes, and even the appearance of the church. She added, It is good to pray sometimes. And up to the time for luncheon, these ladies continued to be amiable toward her in order to increase her docility and her confidence in their counsel. At the table they commenced the approach. This was in the shape of a vague conversation upon devotion. They cited ancient examples, Judith and Holofernes, then, without reason, Lucretia and Sextus, and Cleopatra obliging all the generals of the enemy to pass by her coach and reducing them in servility to slaves. Then, they brought out a fantastic story, hatched in the imagination of these ignorant millionaires, where the women of Rome went to Capua for the purpose of lulling Hannibal to sleep in their arms, and his lieutenants and phalanxes of mercenaries as well. They cited all the women who have been taken by conquering armies, making a battlefield of their bodies, making them also a weapon and a means of success and all those hideous and detestable beings who have conquered by their heroic caresses and sacrificed their chastity to vengeance or a beloved cause. They even spoke, in veiled terms, of that great English family which allowed one of its women to be inoculated with a horrible and contagious disease in order to transmit it to Bonaparte, who was miraculously saved by a sudden illness at the hour of the fatal rendezvous.
and all this was related in an agreeable temperate fashion except as it was enlivened by the enthusiasm deemed proper to excite emulation one might finally have believed that the sole duty of woman here below was a sacrifice of her person and a continual abandonment to soldierly caprices the two good sisters seemed not to hear lost as they were in profound thought ball of fat said nothing during the whole afternoon they let her reflect but in the place of calling her madame as they had up to this time they simply called her mademoiselle without knowing exactly why as if they had a desire to put her down a degree in their esteem which she had taken by storm and make her feel her shameful situation the moment supper was served mr follenby appeared with his old phrase the prussian officer orders me to ask if miss elizabeth Rousset has yet changed her mind ball of fat responded dryly no sir but at dinner the coalition weakened Lousseau made three unhappy remarks each one beat his wits for new examples but found nothing when the countess without premeditation perhaps feeling some vague need of rendering homage to religion asked the elder of the good sisters to tell them some great deeds in the lives of the saints it appeared that many of their acts would have been considered crimes in our eyes but the church gave absolution of them readily since they were done for the glory of god or for the good of all it was a powerful argument the countess made the most of it thus it may be by one of those tacit understandings or the veiled complacency in which anyone who wears the ecclesiastical garb excels it may be simply from the effect of a happy unintelligence a helpful stupidity but in fact the religious sister lent a formidable support to the conspiracy they had thought her timid but she showed herself courageous verbose even violent she was not troubled by the chatter of the casuist her doctrine seemed a bar of iron her faith never hesitated her conscience had no scruples she found the sacrifice of abraham perfectly simple for she would immediately kill father or mother on an order from on high and nothing in her opinion could displease the lord if the intention was laudable the countess put to use the authority of her unwitting accomplice and added to it the edifying paraphrase and axiom of jesuit morals the need justifies the means then she asked her then my sister do you think that god accepts intentions and pardons the deed when the motive is pure who could doubt it madam an action blamable in itself often becomes meritorious by the thought it springs from and they continued thus unraveling the will of god foreseeing his decisions making themselves interested in things that in truth they would never think of noticing all this was guarded skilful discreet 
but each word of the saintly sister in a cap helped to break down the resistance of the unworthy courtesan. Then the conversation changed a little. The woman of the chaplet, speaking of the houses of her order, of her superior, of herself, of her dainty neighbor, the dear sister St. Nicephory, they had been called to the hospitals of Havre to care for the hundreds of soldiers stricken with smallpox. They depicted these miserable creatures giving details of the malady. And while they were stopped en route by the caprice of this Prussian officer, a great number of Frenchmen might die whom perhaps they could have saved. It was a specialty with her, caring for soldiers. She had been in Crimea in Italy, in Austria, and, in telling of her campaigns, she revealed herself as one of those religious aides to drums and trumpets who seem made to follow camps, pick up the wounded in the thick of battle, and, better than an officer, subdue with a word great bands of undisciplined recruits. A true good sister of the Ratapalin whose ravaged face, marked with innumerable scars, appeared the image of the devastation of war. No one could speak after her, so excellent seemed the effect of her words. As soon as the repast was ended, they quickly went up to their rooms, with the purpose of not coming down the next day until late in the morning. The luncheon was quiet. They had given the grain of seed time to germinate and bear fruit. The countess proposed that they take a walk in the afternoon. The count, being agreeably inclined, gave an arm to Balafat and walked behind the others with her. He talked to her in a familiar, paternal tone, a little disdainful, after the manner of men having girls in their employ, calling her, my dear child, from the height of his social position, of his undisputed honor. He reached the vital part of the question at once. Then you prefer to leave us here, exposed to the violences which follow a defeat, rather than consent to a favor which you have so often given in your life? Ball of Fat answered nothing. Then he tried to reach her through gentleness, reason, and then the sentiments. He knew how to remain the Count, even while showing himself gallant, or complimentary, or very amiable if it became necessary. He exalted the service that she would render them, and spoke of her appreciation, then suddenly became gaily familiar, and said, and you know, my dear, it would be something for him to boast of that he had known a pretty girl, something it is difficult to find in his country. Ball of Fat did not answer, but joined the rest of the party. As soon as they entered the house, she went to her room and did not appear again. The disquiet was extreme. What were they to do? If she continued to resist, what an embarrassment! The dinner hour struck. They waited in vain. Mr. Follenby finally entered and said that Miss Roussette was indisposed and would not be at the table. Everybody pricked up his ears. 
The Count went to the innkeeper and said in a low voice, Is he in there? Yes. For convenience, he said nothing to his companions, but made a slight sign with his head. Immediately a great sigh of relief went up from every breast and a light appeared in their faces. Lousseau cried out, Holy Christopher! I pay for the champagne if there is any to be found in the establishment. And Mrs. Lousseau was pained to see the proprietor return with four quart bottles in his hands. Each one had suddenly become communicative and buoyant. A wanton joy filled their hearts. The Count suddenly perceived that Mrs. Carey Lamadon was charming. The manufacturer paid compliments to the Countess. The conversation was lively, gay, full of touches. Suddenly, Lousseau, with anxious face and hand upraised, called out, Silence! Everybody was silent, surprised, already frightened. Then he listened intently and said, his two eyes and his hands raised toward the ceiling, listening, and then continuing in his natural voice, All right, all goes well. They failed to comprehend at first, but soon all laughed. At the end of a quarter of an hour he began the same farce again, renewing it occasionally during the whole afternoon and he pretended to call to someone in the story above, giving him advice in a double meaning, drawn from the fountainhead, the mind of a commercial traveler. For some moments he would assume a sad air, breathing in a whisper, Poor girl! Then he would murmur between his teeth with an appearance of rage, Ugh! That scamp of a Prussian! Sometimes, at a moment when no more was thought about it, he would say, in an affected voice, many times over, Enough! Enough! And add, as if speaking to himself, If we could only see her again, it isn't necessary that he should kill her, the wretch. Although these jokes were in deplorable taste, they amused all, and wounded no one, for indignation, like other things, depends upon its surroundings, and the atmosphere which had been gradually created around them was charged with sensual thoughts. At the dessert the women themselves made some delicate and discreet illusions. Their eyes glistened. They had drunk much. The Count, who preserved, even in his flights, his grand appearance of gravity, made a comparison much relished upon the subject of those wintering at the pole and the joy of shipwrecked sailors who saw an opening toward the south. Lousseau suddenly arose, a glass of champagne in his hand, and said, I drink to our deliverance. Everybody was on his feet. They shouted in agreement. Even the two good sisters consented to touch their lips to the froth of the wine which they had never before tasted. They declared that it tasted like charged lemonade, only much nicer. Lousseau resumed. It is unfortunate that we have no piano, for we might make up a quadrille. Cornadet had not said a word, nor made a gesture. He appeared plunged in very grave thoughts, and made sometimes a furious motion, so that his great beard seemed to wish to free itself. 
Finally, toward midnight, as they were separating, Lousseau, who was staggering, touched him suddenly on the stomach and said to him in a stammer, "'You are not very funny this evening. You have said nothing, citizen.' Then Cornudet raised his head brusquely and, casting a brilliant, terrible glance around the company, said, "'I tell you all that you have been guilty of infamy.' He rose, went to the door, and again repeated, "'Infamy, I say!' and disappeared. This made a coldness at first. Lousseau, interlocutor, was stupefied. But he recovered immediately and laughed heartily as he said, "'He is very green, my friends. He is very green.' And then, as they did not comprehend, he told them about the mysteries of the corridor. Then there was a return of gaiety. The women behaved like lunatics. The Count and Mr. Carey Lamadon wept from the force of their laughter. They could not believe it. How is that? Are you sure? I tell you I saw it. And she refused? Yes, because the Prussian officer was in the next room. Impossible. I swear it. The Count was stifled with laughter. The industrial gentleman held his sides with both hands. Lousseau continued, And now you understand why he saw nothing funny this evening. No, nothing at all. And the three started out half ill, suffocated. They separated. But Mrs. Lousseau, who was of a spiteful nature, remarked to her husband as they were getting into bed that that grisette of a little Carré Lamadon was yellow with envy all the evening. You know, she continued, how some women will take to a uniform, whether it be French or Prussian. It is all the same to them. Oh, what a pity. And all night, in the darkness of the corridor, there were to be heard light noises like whisperings and walkings in bare feet and imperceptible creakings. They did not go to sleep until late, that is sure, for there were threads of light shining under the doors for a long time. The champagne had its effect. They say it troubles sleep. The next day a clear winter's sun made the snow very brilliant. The diligence, already harnessed, waited before the door, while an army of white pigeons in their thick plumage with rose-colored eyes with a black spot in the center walked up and down gravely among the legs of the six horses, seeking their livelihood and the manure there scattered. The driver, enveloped in his sheepskin, had a lighted pipe under the seat, and all the travelers, radiant, were rapidly packing some provisions for the rest of the journey, they were only waiting for ball of fat. Finally, she appeared. She seemed a little troubled, ashamed. And she advanced timidly toward her companions, who all, with one motion, turned as if they had not seen her. The Count, with dignity, took the arm of his wife and removed her from this impure contact. The fat girl stopped, half stupefied. Then, Plucking up courage, she approached the manufacturer's wife with, "'Good morning, madame,' humbly murmured. The lady made a slight bow of the head, which she accompanied with a look of outraged virtue. 
Everybody seemed busy and kept themselves as far from her as if she had some infectious disease in her skirts. Then they hurried into the carriage, where she came last, alone, and where she took the place she had occupied during the first part of the journey. They seemed not to see her or know her, although Madame Lousseau, looking at her from afar, said to her husband in a half-tone, "'Happily I don't have to sit beside her.' The heavy carriage began to move, and the remainder of the journey commenced. No one spoke at first. Bala Fat dared not raise her eyes. She felt indignant toward all her neighbors, and at the same time humiliated at having yielded to the foul kisses of this Prussian into whose arms they had hypocritically thrown her. Then the Countess, turning toward Mrs. Curie Lamadon, broke the difficult silence. "'I believe you know Madame de Trelles. "'Yes, she is one of my friends. "'What a charming woman! "'Delightful, a very gentle nature, "'and well-educated besides. "'Then she is an artist to the tips of her fingers, "'sings beautifully, and draws to perfection.' "'The manufacturer chatted with the Count.' and in the midst of the rattling of the glass an occasional word escaped, such as coupon, premium, limit, expiration. Lousseau, who had pilfered the old pack of cards from the inn, greasy through five years of contact with tables badly cleaned, began a game of bezique with his wife. The good sisters took from their belt the long rosary which hung there, made together the sign of the cross, and suddenly began to move their lips in a lively murmur, as if they were going through the whole of the Oremus, and from time to time they kissed a medal, made the sign anew, then recommenced their muttering, which was rapid and continued. Cornadet sat motionless, thinking. At the end of three hours on the way, Lousseau put up the cards and said, I am hungry. His wife drew out a package from whence she brought a piece of cold veal. She cut it evenly, in thin pieces, and they both began to eat. "'Suppose we do the same,' said the countess. They consented to it, and she undid the provisions prepared for the two couples. It was in one of those dishes whose lid is decorated with a china hair, to signify that a pate of hare is inside, a succulent dish of pork, where white rivers of lard cross the brown flesh of the game, mixed with some other viands hashed fine. A beautiful square of gruyere cheese, wrapped in a piece of newspaper, preserved the imprint, Divers Things, upon the unctuous plate. The two good sisters unrolled a big sausage, which smelled of garlic, and Cornadette plunged his two hands into the vast pockets of his overcoat at the same time and drew out four hard eggs and a piece of bread. He removed the shells and threw them in the straw under his feet. Then he began to eat the eggs, letting fall on his vast beard some bits of clear yellow, which looked like stars caught there. Ball of fat, in the haste and distraction of her rising, had not thought of anything. And she looked at them exasperated, 
suffocating with rage at all of them eating so placidly. A tumultuous anger swept over her at first, and she opened her mouth to cry out at them, to hurl at them a flood of injury which mounted to her lips. But she could not speak. Her exasperation strangled her. No one looked at her or thought of her. She felt herself drowned in the scorn of these honest scoundrels who had first sacrificed her and then rejected her like some improper or useless article. She thought of her great basket full of good things which they had greedily devoured, of her two chickens shining with jelly, of her pâtés, her pears, and the four bottles of Bordeaux, and her fury suddenly falling as a cord drawn too tightly breaks, she felt ready to weep. She made terrible efforts to prevent it, making ugly faces, swallowing her sobs as children do, but the tears came and glistened in the corners of her eyes, and then two great drops, detaching themselves from the rest, rolled slowly down like little streams of water that filter through rock and falling regularly, rebounded upon her breast. She sits erect, her eyes fixed, her face rigid and pale, hoping that no one will notice her. But the countess perceives her and tells her husband by a sign. He shrugs his shoulders as much as to say, What would you have me do? It is not my fault. Mrs. Lousseau indulged in a mute laugh of triumph and murmured, She weeps for shame. The two good sisters began to pray again, after having wrapped in a paper the remainder of their sausage. Then Cornadette, who was digesting his eggs, extended his legs to the seat opposite, crossed them, folded his arms, smiled like a man who is watching a good farce, and began to whistle the Marseille. All faces grew dark. The popular song assuredly did not please his neighbors. They became nervous and agitated, having an appearance of wishing to howl like dogs when they hear a barbarous organ. He perceived this, but did not stop. Sometimes he would hum the words, Sacred love of country, help, sustain the avenging arm, liberty, sweet liberty, ever fight with no alarm. They traveled fast, the snow being harder, but as far as Depp, during the long sad hours of the journey, across the jolts in the road, through the falling night, in the profound darkness of the carriage, he continued his vengeful, monotonous whistling with a ferocious obstinacy, constraining his neighbors to follow the song from one end to the other and to recall the words that belonged to each measure. And Bala Fat wept continually, and sometimes a sob, which she was not able to restrain, echoed between the two rows of people in the shadows. End of Ball of Fat